What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast for FilmmakerU.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and every week we interview a film craftsperson to discuss the craft and art of filmmaking. And this week is no different. We're going to be sitting down with costume designer Jacqueline Banner. She worked on Kindred, which was a very intricate film that involved modern time and historical times. She's going to go into how do you tackle that, how do you tackle finding material that looks realistic for historical times, among many other things. And if you're a fan of Creepshow or horror movies, you might enjoy some of her work. If you're a fan of this type of interview, you're going to love the courses over at FilmmakerU.com. That's where they bring in the top filmmaking craftspeople, discuss their work, and how they like to approach things. And you can get 10% off any of their courses using The Cutting Room. It's all one word, The Cutting Room, when you go to purchase your course. Now, with all that said, let's hear what Jacqueline has to say about Kindred. So I guess my first question, how did you get involved with uh, Kindred? Um, so it came through as an opportunity from my agency, which is um, DDA. And um, I interviewed and obviously they they loved what I wanted to say, what I had to say um, and my ideas and thoughts. And so that is how, you know, I got the opportunity to design um, Kindred. So once you get that type of project, uh, like how did you get started? Like, what, did you start researching into things? Did you start to read the book or how did you approach the project? Yes, lots of research. Um, I, of course, I was definitely familiar with Octavia Butler and had read a couple of her books, but I had not read Kindred. And so, of course, when I got the confirmation that I would be on board, you know, I read the book. I read it a few times because one of the things that um, Brandon Jacob Jenkins, our creator and showrunner, wanted to do was to make sure, um, even though he was adapting it a little bit different from the novel, but we wanted to keep as many of the costume elements from the book, you know, into the series. And so um, read the book, you know, one time just to really get a good understanding of it, read it probably two or three more times to kind of pinpoint the costume elements that we wanted to keep um, and things that we may have wanted to change. And then lots of research, you know, for this time period, because in the novel, the modern day is like, 1979, whereas in the series, modern day is 2016. Um, so that was one of the things too that Brandon wanted to do was to update the book to make it a little bit more relatable, you know, for our time period. Um, so even though you watch it, it may seem like it's like current 2022, but it's actually 2016. But the period piece, the period time was still the same um, as in the book, which is 19, early 19th century, you know, which is early 1800. So for season one, we did 1810 to 1820. And so, you know, during that time in our country, um, a lot of our, you know, ideals and morals and, and definitely fashion and style came from Europe. So as opposed to, you know, it being a situation or a show that's designed like Bridgerton, which has fabulous costumes, you know, um, the differences that Bridgerton is set in another country. It's an upper class society. So there's lots more, um, you know, more expensive looks and fantastical and whimsical things. Whereas Kindred, you know, the period piece is based in Maryland, 
in our country, you know, on a rural plantation. So of course there's gonna be vast differences in terms of the costumes there. So just researching, um, ordered lots of books. Um, we shot in Atlanta, but I did prep in, or part of my prep in LA and New York and went to the various costume houses that LA has to offer. And one of the things that I came to find was that even though LA has lots of great resources, um, there hadn't been a lot of shows um, that had been done for this specific time period, which was kind of like a catch and soup because you want to pull as much as you can for like background actors, because most of the time, of course, in something like this, we want to, you know, custom design pieces for our principal actors, but you do want to have a good stock of things for, you know, you know for your background. And for our men, there were lots of options. For our women, not so much. So that was kind of like a catch-22 because we wanted to have things, but then it just opened up the door for me to just design more things, which was, you know, fun. It's always a costume designer's dream whenever you get to like really build something from, you know, the ground up, so to speak. And so, yeah, like that's, that's what I did. So lots of research. Um, and then once, you know, I got back to Atlanta, um, my tailor shop opened, we hit the ground running with making things. Um, the one, one of the main things that we started off with was the female enslaved um, dresses, because in the book, they were in blue dresses. So of course that's something that we wanted to keep for the series. And so it may sound like it's something that is a fairly simple thing to do, you know, oh, it's just a blue dress, but it's not just a blue dress, you know? The colors really had to work with the production design, you know, the set design and all the different, you know, um, textures and, and colors and patterns and prints that were in the house and on the plantation, but then also trying to find a color that would work on our various, you know, skin complexions that we had to work with. And so um, also during this time period, the plantation owners would give the enslaved fabric for them to make their clothes. And during this time, it wasn't, of course, the most the best fabric, it wasn't the most comfortable fabric, but being that we were shooting this series in Atlanta in the dead of summer, you know, I wanted to try to find a fabric that would, you know, die well, age well, live well in the, the um, Atlanta temperatures, but then also um, something that would be comfortable for the cast and our background actors to be since they had to be in these dresses day in, day out, you know, in this hot, sweaty summer. Um, so that was I wouldn't say a bit of a challenge, but that that did take, you know, a lot of work. And so I did find the fabric um, from Siam Costumes, which is in Thailand. I probably ordered everything that they had because they sent me like two boxes of various samples from cotton, muslins, linen, silk, satins, because those were the fabrics in terms of silks and satins that I used to make um, Margaret's costumes. Um, and so they had this fabulous indigo um, muslin fabric, but it was more of a softer texture. So it, I said, okay, well, maybe this can work. And um, it actually did. So I ordered everything that they had. And when we got it, then we, um, you know, we did our own process and manipula manipulations to it. And then uh, we came out with this, you know, fabulous color that we used for the dresses. And so we did a winter version. And then we also did a summer version. And the summer version, actually, that color is a little bit more of a teal um, blue, so it has a little bit more green tones in it, but it was actually kind of like a trial by error because we were really trying to recreate the initial color that we did for the winter dresses. And when you're dyeing things, it's kind of like trial by error. You add a little bit of this color, you know, you take this color away. Um, and when I showed Brandon 
he said, oh my gosh, I love this color. Like, let's do this one. And so it was kind of like by mistake that it happened, but it turned out to be, you know, um, a great surprise because that's what we ended up using for our summer dresses. Now you designed over 200 authentic. <laughs> How did you keep on top of that? And oh <laughs> and then like find all this fat. Like I, I just picture that place in Thailand being like, oh, I'll just go in for another day. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, we have to send all this material to the US. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were definitely those moments because like I said, for initially we bought all of the indigo dye that they did and then they didn't have any more. And so they just had the actual natural fabric that of course we dyed, you know, in-house in our shop. But how did I keep up with all of that? I mean, I had an amazing um, department, you know, a crew of people that I work with. And so, you know, like them keeping me on my toes and I, I pride myself in being a creative, but I also have like the business side um, of it all. So and everyone said, well, how do you how do you keep all of this, you know, in your head? And I'm just like, I, it amazes me sometimes, you know, that I that that I'm able to, like, you know, manage it all. But, um, you know, I had a, a great ACD. I had a great, you know, um, shopping team, a great tailor shop, you know, Adria Dyer. My set crew was great. And so. Um, working together, just, you know, making sure that nothing's falling through the cracks and just keeping each other, you know, on our toes. And so with the scheduling, you know, I mean, I had I had a really, really lengthy prep time. Like I started in, in January and then we didn't start shooting until April. So I had about a good three and a half months of prep, which was definitely needed. So we were able to do a lot in the beginning. And then once we started shooting, of course, it was a lot more faster paced, you know, episodic shoot anywhere from seven to 10 days. But while we're shooting, the seven to 10 days, we're also prepping for the next episode. So there's lots of moving parts. We, we did a pretty good job of it. <laughs> you talked about the color and like how important the color was and it's referenced in the book, but you're also working with like uh, the set decorators with the cinematographer to make sure the colors work. So how did those relationships work? Like, how did you guys work as a team to make this come together? Yes. Yeah, so Jerry Fleming was our production designer and he and I were in constant communication. You know, he had a lot of prep too, because we actually built um, the plantation, like the house and all the slave cat, the enslaved cabins and the cookhouse. Like there's this great area that was about 45 minutes from the studio um, that they built. And so he would share with me um, the ideas for everybody's room, you know, for the foyer, the parlor, Margaret's room, Rufus's room, um, which was really great because it just really helped me, you know, help to design the, you know, the costumes and what colors would work, you know, for the character, but also work well, you know, within the realm of his design. And so even like when we're shooting on location, um, which we did, you know, part of Dana's house and then also um, the nosy neighbors, <laughs> their house, um, whatever changes they were making to the location that we secured, you know, just being in constant communication about all of those things. So that way, you know, my costume design really um, contrasted and complemented rather than, you know, bleed into, you know, the sets. Now, uh, I'm wondering, because when I look at Dana's character, she is very neutral, like historically neutral in terms of the time period. So what was your approach for her to make her sort of blend in throughout history? Well, I think you nailed it. Historically neutral, because that was a um, a term that Brandon coined because um, I didn't do the pilot. And we find in the pilot when she's first introduced that she just moved to L.A. from New York. And so 
Um, because of the, the timeline of the modern day period, um, and once you, you know, once the viewers see the full series, then the modern day period actually takes span of probably a day, like once she starts being, you know, once she starts transporting back in time, um, it starts from like one night and then kind of finishes like early the next day. And so, um, for this series, a lot of the series did take pay, did take place in the period, but there were a couple of moments when we did go back into the modern. And so it seems like it's simple, you know, oh, she's just, you know, putting on clothes to go back, but we wanted to make sure that she didn't stand out too much. Initially we were thinking, okay, yeah, she should stand out because she is kind of like a fish out of water, you know? Um, so then we started doing fittings and saying, okay, well, no, we, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do Maybe we should do this. And then Brandon, like I said, coined the term historically neutral because he said, you know, no zippers, no shoelaces, no this, no that, you know, there were all these notes um, after doing various fittings, trying to find, you know, the one look, and then he coined the term. And so, even in the book, it's referenced that she's dressed like a man. And then in the series, one of the characters says that, you know, she's dressed like a man. So that doesn't mean that she's in men's clothing. It just means that she's in what a man would be in during that time period, which was pants, because women did not wear pants during that time period. So, you know, and button front shirts, even though the men's shirts during that day were more of a tunic style and kind of like half button, you know, we did put her in a full, you know, button front shirt because those were things that even though when she went back and people saw her, they knew that she wasn't from there, but they would be thinking that, okay, well, maybe she's from New York or she's from Philadelphia or some other area in the country where, you know, um, Black people were more free versus in Maryland during that time. So that's the reason for her costuming. And so it's also more so about, um, survival because when she's going back into the modern world, she never knows exactly when she's gonna be pulled back, you know? So it's like, she's just trying to hurry up. And then she had just moved. So she wasn't really fully unpacked yet. So there was still a little bit of room, a little bit of room for her to, um, for us to not really show exactly um, who she is in the modern time period, it's more so thinking about what can I put on really fast because I never know when I'm gonna be pulled back, but it needs to be something that is gonna work for there because I can't stand out too much. You know, I have to be equipped because I never know what's gonna happen from one moment to the next, especially going back, I may need to run, I may need to do this, I may need to protect myself. Um, you know, so then you see also that she has this go bag that we work with the props department on as well. Um, that she's putting all of these survival things that they don't have during that time period, but she has because, you know, she's, she knows that there's things that are going to happen that she needs to be, you know, equipped for. So her costume, you know, was historically neutral, but it also was more so about survival. Is there, now you've, like I said, you did 200 designs. Is there one that you're particularly proud of that oh people goodness. should keep an eye out for? Oh my goodness, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> Because, I mean, everyone's clothes, everyone's costumes were um, just really amazing and everyone loved them. You know, Brandon loved them. The network loved them. They couldn't stop singing our praises. We even had um, Octavia Butler's estate handler come by during shooting and she was just in awe of, you know, my costume shop and just like the set design and, and everything that we were doing. And so which one am I really the most proud of? Goodness. So in, in 103, in episode 103 and episode 107, I would say that those would probably be like my, my proudest moments. I can't pinpoint one costume. So I'll just say like, those are probably like my two, um, 
episodes where the costumes are just really memorable. Um, 103 was our Christmas um, episode. And so they had a, the Waylands had a party in their house. And so there, there was a small group, group of people that were there, but then um, Tom's ex-wife, well, not Tom's ex-wife, his dead wife's um, sister and her husband, they came, you know, and their costumes were really, really great. Um, and then in 107, they go into town. Tom takes Kevin and the guys into town. And so we finally get to see more than just what's happening on the plantation and get a really, you know, get a, get a feel for, you know, this environment. And so we had, oh my gosh, hundreds of background and men and women and, you know, horsemen and, and all kinds of things going on. We had the barbershop men um, that I put kind of like in a uniform um, that I felt was really, really cool. So I would say those two episodes, I think probably have more of the costumes that stand out the most, you know, for the series, but not to say like the other episodes don't, but I just feel like those two probably have the more memorable ones. When I try on clothes or even like a hat is a great example. It's like, oh, my face doesn't match it or my body type doesn't match it. But if you're working on a historically specific time period, how do you work with the different body types to make sure that they still match that historical period, but look good in the clothes? Right. So, of course, you know, this time the clothes were what they were. You know, we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel or, or recreate something that did not exist. Right. So um, being that the men um, wore basically tailcoats and waistcoats, which are, you know, we call them vests today. Um, you know, their shirts and then they either wore breeches, which are more like the tight fitted kind of capri pants that fit into like the boots. Um, a little bit later on, they wore more like pantaloons that were what we call pants today, but, you know, more of a, a slimmer um, straight leg silhouette. So like the clothes are that for the men of that time period. So how do we um, how do we bring Tom to life, you know, from the book, you know, in this particular kind of clothing? And so being that his character was you know, very mean and calculating and broding, you know, we kept him in, you know, really dark colors, but also a lots of texture because he is also someone um, like Margaret that married into money, you know, um, he married Hannah and Hannah's family had money. So that's where he got his wealth from. He basically inherited that plantation. And so in the book, I think it describes more of his um, financial ups and downs, not so much in the series. We do span a period of three years between a couple of episodes where they do come into um, some more money. But even initially, you see that, you know, that they're doing pretty well. OK, like they're kind of like a middle class, you know, plantation family, I guess, if you will. And so um, being that he came into money you know, he's still a little rough around the edges, you know, as the viewers watch, they'll see that. And so using like the different various textures and colors and tones on him, um, you know, in, in the darker color palette, I think just really helped to show, you know, who he was. Um, then in terms of Margaret's costuming, um, you know, we made everything for her, everything that you see, you know, her in, we, we made. Um, and we did make a lot of things for Tom as well, but there were some really great pieces that I did pull from um, a couple of the costume houses that were in great condition that I said, okay, like I have to keep this for him. I don't want to put 
you know, anybody else in this, you know, because a lot of the stock is used for like our background and potentially like day players, you know, not not cast that we see all of the time. So basically everything for our principal cast was made. So with Margaret, you know, all of her things being made and then she too, you know, is like this, you know, crazy, mean, maniacal character as well. And, and of course, because of the time period, um, you know, she mistreats the enslaved because we wanted to make her someone that the audience could identify with a little bit more because at the end of the day, she she is a mother, you know, she loves Rufus to death. Um, during the series, you'll find that she had five other kids that didn't make it. So Rufus is the one that, you know, that made it. So of course she's very overprotective. She loves him to death. Um, and so because we wanted to kind of show that softer side of her, we did a juxtaposition between, you know, her character and and the clothes, you know, the costumes that she wore by keeping her in jewel tones and lighter colors and silhouettes, just kind of like soften her up a little bit. So that was, um, you know, the elements behind designing Margaret's costumes. And then for Rufus, um, you see that he's kind of like a little Tom, you know, but he can't help it. You know, he's like a mischievous little boy, but you know, he's Tom's son. And and because you know he's his father's son, and and because Margaret. Um, she married into money. She wants to look and dress the part and she wants people to like her, you know, because she knows that Hannah has such a, a huge influence, you know, on the plantation and, and the people in the community that now that she's gone and she's kind of taken her place that, you know, she feels like she has something to prove. And we show that in her costumes and we show that also in Rufus's costumes because he's like her little baby doll. So she wants to make sure that he's always looking his best. And because he was a kid, you know, we played with we played on his red hair um, and keeping him like in brighter tones and oranges and golds and reds and things like that, just to kind of brighten him up. Because even though he has a couple of times where he says and does things that are you're like, whoa, you know, but he's still a child and he's youthful and jovial. So that was, you know, the element to his costuming. Now, I have one last question for you. What would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or TV show to watch? Oh, my goodness. Um, the Real Housewives. <laughs> ah, it's fantastic. It's a great one. Which one? Yes. <laughs> there are a few, right? So um, Beverly Hills, Atlanta, and Salt Lake City. <laughs> Those are my three. I, I, I tried to watch the Dubai initially, but then I just kind of got sidetracked with work. Um, but those would be my, my my top three for the Real Housewives um, franchise. Yeah. <laughs> do, you ever, do you listen to Bitch Sesh, the podcast about it? No, no, I don't. Oh my gosh. It's, uh, they basically, they're watching every single one uh-huh. and it's two comedians and it's just them like discussing everything. And it's become like a whole, like they do live shows now because it's so popular and a couple of the women have come on mm-hmm. uh, and been guests, but it's ridiculous. It's oh a fun, goodness. silly podcast. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> thank you so much for letting me interview today. Well, thank you for having me, Gordon. This has been a pleasure. I, I truly enjoyed it. Cause I mean, I love talking about Kindred and of course I love talking all things costume. So this has been great. So that was my interview with Jacqueline. I'd like to thank Jacqueline Banner for joining us today. I'd also like to thank the team behind this podcast. That's Jason Banky, who's our producer, Evan Winch, who's our editor and sound designer. And of course, you the listener now remember those courses at filmmakeru.com you get 10 percent off with the cutting room it's all one word the cutting room i'm gordon burkell thanks for listening